Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. This morning, we turn to a scripture that'll help us ponder the powerful privilege of prayer, whereby a sovereign Lord God unleashes his grace and releases his gifts upon his children. We turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4. If you'd like to look, if you'd like to turn to that, we're, we're going to take a good look in the good book and see what the good Lord will help us learn about the wonderful privilege of conversation with him. Fourth chapter of Hebrews, and I'll begin reading at the 12th verse, verse 12. Uh, and I invite you to stand with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. Here, here it is, Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Heavenly Father, I, I hold in my hand the Holy Bible. Your word to us, your perfect, infallible, uh, authoritative guidance to us in matters of life and living and salvation and anything else that just really matters. And so I pray that right now you would allow your Holy Spirit who inspired this word to be with us and guide us in the interpretation, explanation, and application of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Eight-year-old Travis McGinnis lied dying in the intensive care unit of the children's section at the University of Michigan Hospital. I had been going over every day to visit with Travis and his parents, Mike and Connie, but the end was near. But on this day I was going to visit him, we had an emergency at another hospital. I had to go the opposite way from Ann Arbor, which was 40 miles away from Jackson, where my church was. So I turned to our youth pastor, Pastor Steve, and I said, Pastor Steve, I cannot get over to Ann Arbor to visit with Travis and his parents today. I said, would you go over there, and I'm going to head the other way to this other hospital. Steve said he would do it, of course, and uh, we each headed in opposite directions. Steve got there, came into the room. Here's Travis, only expected to live a matter of hours, and his parents, Mike and Connie, are sitting there. Pastor Steve visited with them a few minutes. And then he told him he'd like to pray before he left. Pastor Steve prayed. And this is exactly what he prayed. He bowed his head and he said, Oh God, 
please do something for young Travis that will amaze even the doctors. Amen. That's all he prayed. That's all the boy said. Four years of college, three years of seminary, we're paying him a salary and we pay him the government stipulated mileage to drive the 40 miles to Ann Arbor and back. And the only thing he manages to get out of his mouth is, oh God, please do something for young Travis that will amaze even the doctors. And he leaves. Not quite an hour later, Travis's primary care physician rushes into Travis's room, having been summoned by the nurses. He comes in to find Travis sitting up in bed on the road to recovery. Mike and Connie are crying and smiling. The doctor goes over, he examines Travis carefully, and he turns. I mean, not even an hour after Pastor Steve had prayed that brief prayer, Oh God, please do something for young Travis that will amaze even the doctors. He turns to Travis, and he looks at Travis's parents, and he said, Well... I am amazed. <laughs> now, I don't know if they ever told that doctor the whole story. I hope so. But I have to say that even after a lifetime of walking with the Lord, prayer is something that still absolutely amazes me. What it means, what it does, that God even grants us the privilege of it. And he guides and provides through prayer. It's amazing. And it's pursuing the practice of prayer that paves a pathway to victory, vitality, deeper discipleship, transformation, and wholeness in Christian living. Folks, whenever you hit your knees and lift your prayers, all heaven is cheering you on. You bet it is. It's pulling for you, rooting for you, even stacking the deck in your favor. How? Well, I want to give you a handful of ways heaven cheers us on when we pray. And uh, you, you have an insert in your bulletin. Uh, if you want to take notes and, and fill in the, the, the blanks, and we're going to put them up here, you can do that. If you're not the note-taking type, don't worry about it. I'm not keeping track. Uh, but if it helps you, go ahead and do it. First of all, when we pray, we have the grace of God inviting us. We have the grace of God inviting us. Verse 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Think about it, people. The creator of the universe who hurled suns, stars, and solar systems into place in space, including this planet and everything in it and everyone on it, finds a place in our space. He says, so little old you and me, go ahead, march right on up to my throne and talk to me. Go ahead, ask for my help and grace and be bold about it. So I say, he may be mighty God but he's also mighty good. <laughs> sure, he's great, but he's also gracious. So while you marvel at his majesty, don't forget the miracle of his mercy, that he's tremendously awesome, yet tenderly approachable, infinitely powerful, but at the same time, intimately personal. When we pray, is heaven cheering us on? You 
bet it is. We have the grace of God inviting us, that first. Then there's this second. We have the Word of God instructing us. When we pray, we have the Word of God instructing us. Verse 12 of our scripture tells us, For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible knows us better than we know ourselves, inside and out, exposes us for what we really are, forces us to see ourselves as God sees us. Thus, as its words cut into the innermost thoughts and deepest desires, it reveals the things we ought to be dealing with in prayer. So we pray best when we're in touch with Scripture first. When God's Word has permeated our minds and penetrated our hearts, it will overflow into our praying, flooding our prayers with God's wisdom and will. So so God's Word tells us what to pray. And of course, in many places, it also teaches us how to pray. And its promise-packed pages give us lots to claim when we pray. So not only are the scriptures our handbook on living, they're our guidebook when praying. Um, I I don't know, it's not around anymore, but there used to be a comic strip called Kathy. Remember that, any of you? Did you see that? In one installment, Kathy and her boyfriend Irving, who was a golfing fanatic, are out on the golf course. Kathy says, here's your golf ball, Irving. It was over there in the weeds. Irving goes ballistic. Ah, You moved the ball. You're not allowed to move the ball, Kathy. Kathy says, well, who cares? We're we're the only ones out here. Uh, Besides, what's the problem, Irving? And Irving sputters, but it's against the rules, Kathy. It's against the rules. This is a sport. And it's no fun without rules. Or, or, Besides, Irving, you hate rules, don't you? It doesn't matter now. It's a sport. And a sport is no fun unless everyone plays by the exact same rules. And as Irving walks away, Kathy follows after writing in her notebook to do as soon as possible. Get relationships declared a sport and print up a rule book for men isn't a great believer that God's already printed up a rule book on relationships, life, and anything else that just really matters, including prayer. Right here, this book. After all, God's word is true, and God's true to his word. Think of everything God's word is, means, says, and does to guide, guard, and govern our lives and living. Why? Why, Scripture shows us what is right, what isn't right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Isn't that right? (laughs) When the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, they are changed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. And that's why this book delights me, excites me, and ignites me. It's a treasure and a pleasure and the measure of how to live. It's not just a good book, it's God's book. It's inspired and inspiring. It outlives, outlifts, and outloves, outreaches, outranks, and outruns all other books. 
for every word God speaks is pure and every promise God makes is sure to prevent truth decay. Brush up on your Bible. This book may cause you to wonder, but it'll never cause you to wander. It's our guidebook and roadmap, our lamp and light, our sword and shield. There are books that people make, but this book makes people. Some books are written for our information and others for our reformation, but the Bible for our transformation. The Bible ends with revelations, but in our lives, it can bring about revolutions. Relish its truths and respect its reproves. Need it, read it, and heed it, love it, learn it, and live it, believe it, and behave it, appreciate it, and appropriate it. Know it in your head, stow it in your heart, sow it in your world, and show it in your life. Be a Bible-bred, Bible-fed, Bible-led believer. Now, 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 now you know why I like to say I believe in the Bible from Genesis to maps. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Child of God, you need to get into this book and get this book into you. Such benefits and blessings are ours from knowing the Word, living the Word, and praying the Word. When we pray, is heaven cheering us on? You bet it is. <laughs> we have the Word of God instructing us. When we pray, we have the grace of God inviting us. We have the Word of God instructing us. And then there's this third. We have the Son of God inspiring us the Son of God inspiring us. At, at, at verse 14, and, and the last part of the text, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here it is again, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I wonder, when you pray, do you think about this, that you have Jesus in heaven with ready access to the Heavenly Father? And because of his experiences while on earth, he's in touch with what we go through. He's been through it all, weakness and weariness, testing and trouble, heartache and hurt, sadness and sorrow, experienced it all, all but the sin. And now he lives and longs to meet our need, giving us God's grace and mercy. Calvin Hunt is a crack addict in New York City. From time to time, Calvin leaves his job, a good job, leaves his wife and young children, goes to the crack house up the street, spends all his money on the drug, and then goes to a dog house behind the crack house, a real literal dog house, crawls inside it and spends the next few days smoking his stash of crack cocaine. He's been doing this for years, and he's about to lose his family and his job. Jim Cimbala, pastor of, of New York's Brooklyn Tabernacle and author of the contemporary classic on prayer, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, tells Calvin's story. For one day, after Calvin had used up all of his cash and smoked up all of his stash, he headed home to get cleaned up and prepare to go back to work the next day to make more money to feed his habit. 
When Calvin gets home, he discovers the wife and kids are gone, and then he remembers they're down at the midweek prayer meeting at the church they go to, though Calvin's never set foot in it. Calvin gets cleaned up, turns off the light, hops into bed, but no more does his head hit the pillow when, 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 when Calvin hears a voice, and the voice says, Calvin, get up and come down to the church. And then Calvin hears the sound of soft crying in the background. Uh, he's pretty troubled by this, of course, so he jumps out of bed, flips on the light, searches around the apartment. He can find nobody. He gets back into bed, tries to go to sleep, and again the voice comes, Calvin, get up and come down to the church. And there's a sound of crying in the background, soft crying. Again, Calvin gets up. He looks under the bed. He checks in the closet. There's nobody there. He tries to go back again, and here it comes again. Calvin, get up and come down to the church and the crying sound. Now Calvin is really weirded out. He jumps up. He gets dressed. He runs out of the apartment. He heads up to the corner. He catches the next bus that comes. He rides it down to the corner of the church where he knows his wife and kids are at. He comes running in the back door and he pauses and he sees the congregation. All of them are standing up. Some of them have their hands in the air. It seems like everybody's praying at once. And then he begins to pick out some of the prayers. And he hears a man say, Lord, we're standing here praying that you would bring Calvin down to the church. And we're not going to stop till he's here. And then he hears a lady praying, Heavenly Father, please get a hold of Calvin and bring him down to the church so he can meet you. And we're not going to stop till he walks through those doors. Calvin, now he realizes he's been prayed to the church. <laughs> He rushes down the aisle and drops on his knees at the altar, and his wife and his kids run up behind him and hug him, and the pastor comes, and the whole church leads him to Christ right on the spot. And uh, that was some years ago now. Calvin has been a transformed man in Christian ministry ever since then. Calvin, transformed by the prayers of the church to a gracious God, prayers offered through our heavenly high priest, the risen living Lord Jesus Christ, who understanding our weaknesses and temptations gives us grace, mercy, and help when it's needed, wanted, and asked for. When we pray, is heaven cheering us on? You bet it is. We have the Son of God inspiring us. We have the grace of God inviting us, the Word of God instructing us the Son of God inspiring us. And then, and then we have the Spirit of God enabling us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm just not smart enough to know how to pray or what to pray about some things. You've been there, right? But Romans 8, 26 and 27 bails me out. These are, these are my favorite two verses and my favorite chapter of my favorite book of the Bible. Romans 8, 26 and, and 27. Listen to this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. 
And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's a lot there, but what a deal. These verses tell me that when I pray, the Spirit speaks with me, right? Then, too, it says he speaks for me. For me. Now, this is huge. And this is how I imagine it happening. It's one of those times when I don't have a clue what, what to ask God for. There's some situation in my family or, or in a friend. There's some need, and it's serious. And, and uh, I just can't figure out how to talk to God about it. And uh, I mean, my mind is a mess and my heart is breaking and I'm praying and I know good and well what I'm saying isn't making any sense at all. In between the heartbreak and the choked out tears and the and the, the messed up words, I, I know this this can't make any sense to God. And here's what I think. Here's what I think happens. It's then that the Holy Spirit looks down and he says, oh, look at Thomas. There he, there, there he goes again. <laughs> he means well. He really does. But he just doesn't get it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it all. I'm going to take the mess in that guy's mind. And I'm going to take all of the hurt in that guy's heart. And I'm going to package it in the perfect prayer request according to the will of God and present it at the throne of grace for him. So according to Romans 8, the Spirit enables my praying because he speaks not only with me, but for me. But then it also says here, he speaks to me, wonder of wonders. Sometimes it's not left to be a mystery. The Spirit lets me know exactly what God's will is and wants me to pray accordingly. In his book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby illustrates this tremendous truth this way. He writes, Blackaby writes, for his sixth birthday, my oldest son, Richard, was old enough to have a bicycle. I looked all around for a bike. I found a blue Schwinn. I bought it and hid it in the garage. Then I had a task to convince Richard what he wanted for his birthday was a blue Schwinn bike. For the next little while, I worked on him. And before long, Richard decided what he wanted for his birthday was a blue Schwinn bike. Do you know what Richard got? Well, the bike was in the garage. I just had to convince him to ask for it. He asked for it and he got it. What happens when you pray? The Holy Spirit knows what God's got in the garage. It's already there. The, the Holy Spirit's task is to get you to ask for it. What will happen when you ask for things God already wants to give or do? You will always receive. Why? Because you have asked according to the will of God as the Spirit has revealed it to you. When we pray, is heaven cheering us on? You bet it is. We have the Spirit of God enabling us. We have the grace of God inviting us, the Word of God instructing us, the Son of God inspiring us, the Spirit of God enabling us. And then one thing more. When we pray, we have the riches of God encouraging us. The riches of God encouraging us. Philippians 4.19, where Paul pens these words. Don't you love this? And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, Again, let me read that again. And my God 
will supply all your needs, not all your greeds, according to, get this, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Uh, do you? That you have a wonderful God who is so infinitely powerful and, and intimately personal that out of his wonderful riches, out of his tremendous resources, he can meet your needs. Uh, well, okay, I know you do, but are you living and praying like you believe in? A, a Christian left home for his freshman year at the State University and found himself rooming with an atheist. One day, the atheist challenged the Christian. He said, I'm going to prove to you there is no God, and I'll use the perfect proof, your own five senses. The Christian said, well, go ahead. Well, first, the atheist began, can you see God? No, the Christian replied. Can you hear God? No, he said. Can you taste God? No. Can you smell God? No. Can you feel God? Well, here the Christian stopped him. Yes, I can feel God sometimes right here in my heart. Well, there you have it, summed up the atheist. Four out of five, I have just proved there is no God. Well, wait just a minute, my learned friend, the Christian said. Using your own logic, answer me this. Can you see your brain? No, the atheist said. Can you hear it? No. Taste it? No. Even smell it? No. And finally, can you feel it? Well, no, said the atheist. Well, there you have it, the Christian declared, using your own logic, five out of five, you have no brain. Now, uh, you know, you're not an atheist. I know, but I wonder... Is it possible to be a practical, if not a practicing, atheist? You get what I mean by that? Claiming to have and to know a great big God with tremendous resources and wonderful riches, yet living like he is puny, powerless, and poor. Uh, for 18 years, as your pastor mentioned, I uh, pastored the Jackson, Michigan Free Methodist Church. And... Uh, in one of the kitchens at the church there, uh, the older kitchen, there, there were these cabinets, and they were all labeled with this raised white vinyl lettering like we put on things. And one of the cabinets in raised white vinyl lettering had on it the words, it was labeled, unclaimed dishes. Unclaimed dishes. Now, I don't know why. I don't think in 18 years I ever asked anybody because I figured what these were were dishes people had brought to a potluck supper and, and had forgotten them. And some good-hearted soul had come along and cleaned up, uh, cleaned them up and then put the little orphans into the unclaimed dishes cabinet until the rightful owner could show up to claim them. Now, there's a mystery involved in this because on the unclaimed dishes cabinet, there was a padlock. So I just assumed this was the place dishes go to die. Now, so one day I'd gone down to the kitchen to get a, get a drink of water. And as I was leaving the kitchen, again, the unclaimed dishes cabinet caught my eye. And as I headed back to my office, uh, spiritual analogy was irresistible. You know how this works. Uh, yeah, you just go there sometimes. And uh, I, I started thinking about the unclaimed dishes cabinet, and I imagined myself 
in heaven someday. And I'm walking down the golden streets of glory, and the Lord Jesus comes over, and he puts his arm around me, and he says, son, come with me. I'd like to show you something. And so we walk through the heavenly city and out the back gates into the heavenly country, and he takes me up this big, tall hill. And as we break the crest of the hill, we look down, and here is the biggest warehouse you could ever conceive of. It stretching in every direction for miles. And and uh, he says, come down here with me. I want to show you some more. So we walked on down the other side of the hill. And as we go up to the door, I look up and I see in raised white vinyl lettering the words, unclaimed answers. And, and then I see Jesus take a, uh, his big ring of keys and unlock the padlock on the door and take it off. And we step inside. And mamma mia, there are shelves that stretch in every direction, floor to a high ceiling. And the shelves are filled with things. Some are material things, but others, and it's strange, but I'm able to identify them, are, are, are spiritual blessings. And, and they're everywhere, gazillions of them. And I turn to him and I say, Lord, what, what is all this stuff? What's everything in here? And he says to me, oh, my son, these are the unclaimed answers to prayer. Over the centuries, these are the things I wanted to give my people, but they never asked. I just wanted them to ask, that's all. That's all they had to do was ask me for them. And they never, they never claimed them. And I realized I was looking at his riches in glory. But it's a shame because that's where they'd stayed, not what he had intended. When you pray, is heaven cheering you on? You bet it is. We have the riches of God encouraging us. We have the grace of God inviting us, the word of God instructing us, the son of God inspiring us, the spirit of God enabling us, the riches of God encouraging us. Think about this, and then we're going to have our prayer time. Years ago, the late and great golfer Arnold Palmer played a series of exhibition matches in Saudi Arabia, where the king was so impressed, he proposed to give Arnie a gift. Palmer declined. He said, it's just not necessary, your highness. It is honor enough to be invited to play for you in your country. But it is the custom of our culture, the king replied, and I will be terribly upset if you will not allow me to give you a gift. So Arnold Palmer thought quickly and said, well, okay, if you insist, how about a golf club? That's just a golf club. That would be a nice memento of my visit to your country, a golf club. The next day, as Palmer was packing to leave the hotel where he'd been staying, the king had delivered to his room a golf club. Uh, that is, uh, how do I explain this? Uh, the title to a golf club. Thousands of acres, 18 holes, sand traps, trees, water, clubhouse, parking lot, the works. A golf club. And the moral of this story is, in the presence of a king, don't ask for small gifts.